Luke 22 is where we're at. Luke chapter 22. This is a familiar passage of scripture. When you've if you've been in church for any period of time, you've you've heard uh, read before or at least alluded to. Um, and in this passage, it's amazing what Jesus does with the Passover meal in giving it a, an entirely new meaning. Um, something that had been practiced for centuries. And Jesus comes in and says, this is actually what it really means. Um, maybe you've had that experience of something taking on a whole new meaning to you. Something that, that you thought you understood before and now you fully understand. You see it in a new light. Well, we're going to look at that this morning, how Jesus transforms this meal and makes it about about him and about his sacrifice. I think that's the main idea that Jesus is communicating to us, that his body and blood given for us is the foundation of our faith. That'll be our big thought. Jesus' body and blood given for us is the foundation of our faith. So again, this is a familiar passage. Um, it's a foundational passage in Scripture. Sometimes those are daunting ones to, to teach and to preach because it feels so sacred almost. And yet this is something we need to, to pause and to meditate on. So my hope is that this morning I would be able to lead us in just sort of slowing down and seeing these verses, seeing this scene with, with, with fresh eyes. Um, so much of this meal is seen in the fact that it's, in the meaning of the Lord's Supper, is that it's a, a meal of remembrance. And so it's good to, to pause and to remember and to reflect and to think on what is going on um, in the upper room on this particular evening. So let's do that. Let's begin by, we'll read uh, Luke 22, verses 14 through 23, and then we'll just kind of um, slowly walk through and reflect on what Luke has given us here. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Note the time markers in this passage. This We've kind of watched in this chapter as uh, Luke is, is unfolding the events that are here. You look in Luke 22.1, and it says that the Feast of Unleavened, Unleavened Bread is drawing near. So it, it's coming close. Slowly this, this feast, the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is getting closer. And then in verse 7, we see that the, then came the day on, of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So here's the, the first day of this feast. So we go from the week prior to the very day, the day when this 
and when the Passover lamb will be sacrificed. And then in verse 14, we zero in on the hour. When the hour came. The hour when the, when the feast was going to happen, when this Passover meal would be enjoyed together. Luke is, is in a sense, funneling everything down into this moment. He's bringing our focus in on, on these, our eyes to focus in on this particular hour that Jesus is going to sit and speak with his disciples and partake of this meal. We're, we're kind of brought, as it were, into the upper room where, where Jesus is and called to linger for a little bit. We're to see and to hear and to smell and to, to taste and to, to touch everything that is a part of this celebration. So we see Jesus and his disciples and they are around this table and it says that they were reclining at the table, which would have been the traditional way that they would have eaten this meal. They would have had couches of sorts, maybe not like the couch that you're thinking of in your, in your house, but a place where they could lay, as it were, on their side, propped up probably on one arm with a, a pillow, and that's how they would eat this, this meal. So as beautiful as uh, is it uh, as the the Last Supper portrait is, where they're all sitting around the table, it's it's wrong. Uh, you know they weren't sitting in chairs, but they were reclining. The text says. So you look at the scene and you can see them there, and you can see the maybe the cups and the plates, as it were, that had been laid out by by Peter and by John. They were in charge of setting this this whole thing up. You can smell the the roasted lamb. You can smell the unleavened bread. The, the sun has just set, and so there's there's oil lamps probably that are igniting this room. They're just taking effect. Um, so that's that's where they are at. Jesus um, is the head. He's the leader of this, this household at the moment. So he is the one that's in charge of leading through the meal. And he begins by saying that, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's literally, I have desired with desire. It's a Hebrew idiom that he's saying. I've, I've desired with desire to eat this with you. I was thinking about that. What, what was it behind this desire that Jesus had to eat this meal? Let me just give you four thoughts, four areas that this desire stems from, just reflecting on this. I think the first is his love for his disciples. His love for his disciples. He desires to eat this meal, but he doesn't just say, I just want to, I want to eat the Passover meal. What does he say? I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He wants to eat it with his disciples because he loves his disciples. These were Jesus' closest friends on earth. There were people that had stood with him in difficulty. They were those who had followed him into suffering and pain. Think about all that the disciples had gone through in following Jesus. They had stood with Jesus. I'm sure they laughed together. I know that they wept together. And and as as he thinks about what is coming, he wants to spend these final hours with with those that he loved and those that that loved him. I, I don't think it's a stretch then to think and to apply into this that uh, uh, Jesus's love for us. John 15 says that he calls his followers. He doesn't say you are servants anymore. He says that we are his friends. And God desires for us to be near to Him, to, to fellowship with Him. He longs for us to pray with Him, to, to hear Him, to hear His words in Scripture, that we would be near to Christ. I think that's a core part of what's going on here. You know, it's one thing when I want to spend time with someone who's maybe greater than I am, 
But if that person wants to spend time with me, that's pretty significant. And here Jesus is saying that he desires to spend time with his disciples. And I think that as we think about when we start our day, maybe in God's word or in prayer, or throughout our day when we're praying, we can think that God desires that. God, God wants us to commune with him. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to be a part of our lives in intricate and intimate ways. It's not just us. God desires that. So he desires to to have this meal with his disciples because of his love for his disciples. I think it flows, the text would say, from his approaching suffering as well. He desires because of his approaching suffering. It says, he, he says, I, I, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the last time that Jesus will have this kind of joy and fellowship before he's betrayed by Judas, before he's forsaken by those who surround him. This would be the last time that he can instruct them before he's taken away from them. And we see that in John, don't we? In John, this is extended. We see the whole scene where he's instructing his disciples. He's telling them about how they should love one another and how they should abide in him and what the way of salvation looks like. So I, I think that there's this, this approaching suffering that's coming, and he wants to, to spend time with his disciples before that happens. But even he, he wants to set that in motion. The suffering is is coming, and, and he desires for this redemption to be accomplished. In the garden, you see there's a little this fear and, and trepidation about what is coming, and yet at the same time, Jesus knows what is coming, and he wants to to, to do this before he suffers. And there's this desire to do what the Father has set out for him to do, to, to accomplish this, the, the redemption that the Father has sent him to do. And so he wants to have this, this meal, because this is part of the path that's going to lead to him going to the cross. It's, there's a motivating factor here. So we see his love for his disciples, the, his approaching suffering. I think another reason he desires is because of his approaching departure. And he talks about this in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's this idea that he is he is going away. He's leaving. You think Jesus was a human being. He was God, fully God, but he was a human being. And for 30-some years, he celebrated the Passover. Think about your favorite holiday. This is Jesus' favorite holiday. This is the high holiday in, in the Jewish calendar. This is a great day. And this is the last time that, that he is going to participate in the Passover meal until he returns in the fullness of the kingdom. You, know, you might think about if you've ever moved from your house, and you know you have those final days and you think, this is the last time that I'm going to do this in this house. This is the last meal that we'll have together in this house. This is the last time I'll sleep in my room before we move from this house. Maybe even we could think about those that, like Jesus, have an understanding of that their days are numbered, that they, they will not live much longer. And they can say, this is my last Christmas that I'm going to celebrate. And this is the last birthday that I might have. And there's this sense in which Jesus is looking at the, the Passover, and he says, this is the last time that I'm going to do this until I come back in my kingdom. I think Jesus took joy in the Passover celebration. He enjoyed the meal each year that he participated in it, from when he was a, a small child and was part of it up until... Uh, these times when he celebrated it with his disciples. Uh, th there's more than nostalgia that's going on here. But I don't think there's less. I think there's something beautiful about Jesus enjoying this meal. I think the final factor, though, is not just his departure, but also his future return. 
this desire that he has to eat this meal has to do with his future return. That's what he says, for I will, I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In the, in the Lord's Supper, there's this focus on the past and on the present, and Jesus brings it to the future as well. The future that he's, he's longing for when, when this meal and, and all that it spoke of and all that it represented would be fully realized. And he's looking forward to that day when he, when he comes back and will t- partake in this meal. And so he's, he's soaking in the symbol and he wants his disciples to think about this future fulfillment that's going to happen. So, Jesus says that he has earnestly desired to eat this Passover. And he begins by taking up a cup, it says in verse 17. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he divided it. But Luke's account is a little different than the other Gospels, because there's this account of a cup here, and then there's another cup. And it can be kind of confusing if you don't really know what's going on with the, the Passover meal. But for those who knew the rhythm of the Passover meal, this made perfect sense. And maybe you've participated in something like a Passover Seder, and, and you've seen that there's there's a there's a rhythm, there's an order that includes various teaching moments and different times that you're going to eat different foods. And actually, it includes four different cups of wine that are that are drunk throughout the meal. The meal would begin with a, a blessing on the first cup, and, and there was this. The, the the blessing there, and then the, the there was sort of a preliminary meal that included the bitter herbs that would remind the Israelites of the bitterness of their slavery as they're reflecting on their deliverance. And then there was a second cup that was followed with an explanation of the Passover, and after that second cup and the explanation, they would take the main meal, which would include um, the lamb. So the cup in verse 17 is probably one of those first two cups. Um, probably the first cup. It would make sense. He offers thanks, and then he asks his disciples to divide it out among them. And again, a second time, he speaks about the coming kingdom and the fact that this is going to be the last time that he will drink of the fruit of the vine, he says, until he comes in his kingdom. It's kind of hard when you read it to actually tell, you wonder, did Jesus eat the Passover? Did he drink the cup? Because he, he seems like he's saying, I won't eat the Passover and I won't drink the cup. But as we look at the different accounts, it would seem that he did eat um, and that he drank every cup except for the last cup, except for the fourth cup, when he says, I won't drink again. And that cup probably sat full, that he did not partake of the last cup. It's hard to imagine what the disciples are thinking about when he's saying these things. He says, I'm not going to eat the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom that's coming. I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the, the kingdom of God comes fully. What are they thinking? What's that mean? I thought. I wonder if some of them thought, well, that means it's happening within a year. Jesus isn't going to miss a Passover. And so by this time next year, the kingdom is going to be here. I don't know what they thought. But I, I think whatever they thought, they probably didn't think that some 2,000 years later, we would be celebrating this meal, waiting for the fullness of the kingdom. I don't think they had that in view. And yet Jesus knows that there's this, this waiting, this time that's going to come in the future. All of this pointing to the fullness of the kingdom. There's that that big part that's going on here. He says, I'm going to eat this, then I'm leaving, and I won't touch it again until the fullness of the kingdom comes. This future coming, this waiting, this longing for the return of Christ, for, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Jesus will again take up the cup, when we will drink together with him then, but not until then. So then Jesus takes bread. This is the part that we're probably most familiar with. 
says that he take he took bread. Um, there in verse 18, I tell you, I'm sorry, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. This is probably after the after the, the after the second cup, and then the main meal. There's a blessing over the unleavened bread, um, and it would seem that this is where Jesus talked about the broken body. Verse 19, he gives thanks, and then he breaks the bread and he gives it to to each of them. This unleavened bread symbolized how the Israelites had to leave Egypt in haste. They couldn't let their bread rise, and so it was unleavened bread. It reminded them of their deliverance from Egypt. Just before this, they talked about their deliverance from from Israel um, and the ways that God had brought this deliverance. There's this script that they were supposed to follow, right? You say this, you eat this, you drink this, you say this, you do this, you do that. And there was everyone knew what was going on. Everyone was involved, the oldest to the youngest. They were all supposed to know how to do these things. And Jesus had done this for at least 30 years. He'd been a part of it. He probably he knew the rhythm well. He'd led it for years, probably. He'd spoken these words at previous Passovers. But then all of a sudden, in this moment, Jesus kind of goes off script. He he says something and he introduces something new into this meal. That that would signal something extremely significant. I don't know about you, but my family has tons of traditions. You have to do certain things at certain holidays, and you have to say certain things, silly things, things that we just you have to say this every year. You have to watch that movie every year. You have to do this every year. It always has to happen this way. And, and this 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 is rich with tradition. And so for Jesus to sort of break with tradition and do something totally different would signal that something unique has happened here. Usually there was the blessing over the bread, and then the bread was eaten in silence. And so the disciples are there eating this bread, expecting it to be silent. And what does Jesus do? He says, this is my body. This bread that you're eating, this is my body. And it's the, the symbol of salvation from Egypt now becomes the symbol of salvation that we have in Jesus. Let's just pause here for a moment and be clear that this is a symbol. That it represents the body of Jesus, but it is not the literal body of Jesus. Neither is the the, the wine, the literal blood of Jesus. When Jesus says, this is my body, I can't imagine any of the disciples thinking that it was his real physical body. Why? Because he's there. He's sitting there with them. This was all also in the context of the of the Passover meal, which is rich with symbolism. And so when Jesus speaks, he speaks symbolically, just like everything else represented things. He says, this body represents, it stands for my body. It's a symbol. What, what kind of a symbol is it? What, what does it represent? How is the bread a symbol? First, it, it, it is bread, just as Jesus is the bread of life. The disciples knew this. They would recall Jesus' teaching when he stood up and he says, I am the bread of life. Anyone who is thirsty, if you come to me, you will never, I mean, anyone who is hungry, if you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. I'm the bread of life. They, they would have thought about all the times that Jesus had broken bread, especially that time when there were 5,000 people and he had five loaves from some little boy's lunch. And what does he do? He just breaks the bread and he breaks the bread and he breaks the bread. And he breaks the bread and it just keeps going. And he feeds all of these people, fills them full with the bread. 
And so Jesus says that he is the bread of life, and he proclaims that he satisfies the deepest longings that we have. And he can satisfy anyone and everyone. He can fill anyone and everyone full with who he is. He will be the source of life. Those who turn from sin to Jesus will be satisfied in him. He's the bread of life, and he overflows with eternal life. So it's it's a symbol because it's bread, just like Jesus is the bread of life. It's a symbol because it's broken. It's broken just as Jesus was broken. The disciples probably wouldn't know the depth of this until later. But they would later. Because Jesus' body was was broken. It was ripped to shreds. Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, there is significance to the violence that is done to this bread. It's, it's torn. It is broken. There's something about that that reminds us of the physical brokenness of Jesus. Of, of his stripes that bring healing. Of his wounds that were for our transgressions. Of, of his bruises that were for our iniquity. There's something significant there in the symbolism. The bread is broken just as Jesus was broken. The bread is given. It's given just as Jesus freely gave himself. So Jesus breaks this bread and he gives a piece to each of his disciples. He breaks and he gives. He breaks and he gives, handing it to each of his friends. And just as he freely gave the bread, he freely gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. His his life was not taken from him, was it? Jesus gave his life up. He laid it down. We see this even in verses 21 through 22. So Jesus says in the midst of this, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It says that Jesus is going as has been determined. This is determined. This is not something that he's being forced into, but rather it is determined and he is laying down his life. Judas is responsible. That's clear in verse 22. Woe to him. He is responsible for his actions. But at the same time, Jesus is fully in control. He is giving his body. It's not being taken from him. So it's bread, just as Jesus is the bread of life. It's broken, just as Jesus was broken. It's given, just as Jesus freely gave himself. And then I think the culmination of the symbolism is that it is for the disciples just as Jesus' body was given for us. I think this is the heart of what Jesus' death means, and it's this idea that it was for us. He didn't just die, he died for us. Jesus wasn't just killed, he laid down his life, and he gave it up for us. His death was on our behalf. It was for our sake. When Jesus is killed as a, as a common criminal, he dies as an innocent man. He had done nothing wrong. And he doesn't die for his own sin. He dies for our sins. The authors of the New Testament pick up on this, and they see that the death of Jesus is not, is not just death, but it is death for us. It is on behalf of us. So t- take your bulletin. I hope I have one up here. <laughs> There's an insert. Just found it. Thanks, Carolyn. <laughs> There's an insert that says Christ's death was for us. 
Let's read this together. I want, I'm going to read the regular portions. And just to emphasize how this is throughout the whole New Testament, this isn't all the scriptures that there are, but that it is for us. Just read with me on the bold portions. I'll read the regular type, and we'll all read together the bold. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Such a core part of what the death of Jesus means and how it changes the way that we live it's for us his death was not just a death but it was a death for us it's a vicarious death it's 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 given for us just as this bread is given to each of them his body has been given for us so jesus takes this bread in the midst of this meal and he gives it a whole new meaning he shows he shows that he is our life that he's the satisfaction of our souls that he was broken he was given for us and for our salvation. And then after that, he takes the cup. The cup here, most people say, is the third cup, which was known as the cup of redemption. And Jesus says it's poured out for you. Just, to, just as the, this wine is it's poured from a vessel into different cups for the disciples to drink, so too Jesus was. Jesus' blood is poured out for his followers. The wine, it, it's, it's flowing from, from this pitcher. And it's a graphic symbol of the fact that Jesus' blood pours from his body on our behalf. The, the symbolism, I think, is, is clear. It's interesting that here in, in Luke, he, he doesn't even say, this is my blood. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The other Gospels do say this is my blood, but I think it's just interesting to note here that Luke is emphasizing the, the symbolism that is here. This this cup is, is poured out. It's the new covenant in my blood. No covenant, no promise was ever made without the shedding of blood. And so Moses sprinkles the blood of the covenant, the blood of an ox on the people to institute God's law in Exodus 24. 
We see this all throughout um, Scripture. And Jesus establishes this new covenant, this new promise through the shedding of his own blood. He dies in, in our place. His blood speaks for us that he will do what he says. He's going to fulfill the new covenant. He will give us forgiveness of sins. He will give us a new heart. He will cleanse us from our sins. The, the inauguration, the, the beginning of this new covenant happens then on the night of, of Passover. And Jesus, in doing that, marks that this old covenant is now fading. That the symbolism that had been practiced for years, hundreds of years, is now fulfilled on this very night in what he is going to do through his death and his resurrection. This old covenant fades away and he totally replaces what it means. It's an amazing thing. It's an extremely bold thing for Jesus to do. The authority that he has to stand there and to take this bread, to take that cup and say, this is my body. This is my blood. But he has every right to do it. Because he's the one that instituted the first covenant. So he comes and he shows that he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. I think it's interesting that this whole scene is then marked by the betrayal of Judas. You notice there's no break and there's no end quotation in, in verse 20, but it leads right into verse 21. Jesus says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The very next breath, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. But we noted that this is according to God's plan, and yet Judas is also culpable, responsible. But I do think it's interesting that Jesus says this, and what do all the disciples do? They start asking each other, is it you? Is it me? There's this sense in which they seem to, to know what we saw last week, that there is a, a betrayer in us all. That they're striving to be faithful, but they know that the pressure that's surrounding them has been hard. All these religious leaders and all the, 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 the authorities that surround them are pushing against them and they just wonder if they're going to break. You know, I think that's just a reminder that we are all capable of unfaithfulness to Christ. And we sit around the table. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves. We look at our hearts and we try to see where's the, the unfaithfulness that's been in me this week. How have I sinned against God? And we confess that. We confess our sins to God. But even when we take the meal, when we take the Lord's Supper, none of us does it totally pure. It's a sin that resides in all of us. If, if we waited until we were sinless on our own, then we would never take the Lord's Supper. We'd never do it. But we take the Lord's Supper to remind us that the body and the blood of Jesus, that without them we have no hope. There is no hope of salvation in the things that I do. It reminds us that without Christ's work, then nothing could save us, not even the good works that we seem to have. You know, Jesus says that we are to do all of this in remembrance of him, to remember him. It's a memorial service, as it were. And so as we, we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I, I think that there's this realm where we look to the past and then we look to the present, and we look to the future. I think that's the realms where Jesus is speaking of. 
for us, the past is, is the death of Christ. What he has done for us. We look to the past. We look to the broken body of Jesus. We look to what Christ has done for us to bring about salvation. We think about the broken body of Jesus. The shed blood of Jesus. That, that all of the terrible things physically and emotionally and everything that happened to Christ was for us. That the penalty for our sin was death. A gruesome death that Jesus took on our behalf. We look to the past and we remember what Christ has done for us. And we look to the present. We examine our lives. We think, am I living in light of the sacrifice that Jesus has made? Is there is there sin in my heart? Have I been rebelling against God? Am I, as Paul says, trampling the blood of Christ by the way that I willfully sin? We look in the present. We think about the betrayer that's in each of us. We think about the Judas that's deep in our hearts. We reflect on that. And we, we take it to the past. We say, God, forgive me for what you for my sin by what you have done on the cross. But then there's this future element that Jesus continues to emphasize, doesn't he? This future hope of the fullness of the kingdom coming. That one day he will again take up the cup. If it's right that that fourth cup was not drunk by Jesus, that he let it sit there. Just In my mind's eye, imagine what that would be like for the disciples as everyone takes up the fourth cup and drinks it and they notice that Jesus is leaving it there. It's full, he doesn't take it. And then they all leave the upper room. They go out to, to the Mount of Olives and, and hear the teaching of Jesus even more. In the midst of that, Judas comes and betrays Jesus and they all scatter and they run and they come back where? the upper room I just wonder if the table's still there you know is that cup still there this is my sanctified imagination but you know is the cup still there filled with the wine and is it waiting for Jesus and surely at some point someone poured it out and maybe they remembered the words of Jesus and thought when will the fullness of the kingdom come is Jesus ever going to drink the cup again because now he's dead he's in a tomb and this isn't going to happen everything that he stood for is now over with But we know that he will, right? That he will come back. He will return. And as it were at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I just imagine that Jesus sort of picks up right where he left off here. That he finishes the meal. It's it's called the cup praise is what the fourth cup is called. And that when he returns in the fullness of his kingdom, everything, the fullness of the fullness of this meal, he, he shows that he is the fulfillment of it. But even more in that day, we will see the fullness of everything that God has bought for us through his blood and through his broken body, that the fullness of our salvation is there. And Jesus will pick up the fourth cup, as it were, and we will all pick it up together with him. And for all of eternity, we'll drink the cup of praise. Praise to God for what he has done through his death and through his resurrection.